Hello and welcome to the Work Matters Podcast, where we discuss what matters at work and how to make it better. I'm Robert Richardson, here with Dr. Steve Hunt. Steve, what matters at work today? Interviews matter, and not just interviews, Robert, but like high stakes conversations in general, where you're going in, and interviews are probably the best example of it, but where you're going in and you really want to make a positive impression on someone, but you also want to collect deeper information so you can make effective decisions. So have you ever had a good or bad experience with kind of an interview or that sort of a conversation? Yeah, I think I've had a, a lot of both and a lot of high stakes conversations over the course of my career. One kind of stands out in particular in my mind because I applied this principle that goes all the way back to my college years studying industrial organizational psychology. I encountered this study that looked at how much time was spent in conversation during an interview and who did most of the talking. What I found really fascinating about the study was that at the end of the day, what they found was essentially whoever did the most talking generally felt that this meeting went the best. So if it was the recruiter who spent a lot of time talking, they rated the candidate really well. And if it was the candidate who spent a lot of time talking, they rated that conversation as having gone well, when in fact, it really may not have. But if the recruiter rated it as going really well, the candidate may have actually felt the interview went poorly while the recruiter was thinking it went fantastic. That's fascinating. You know, I think it gets into sort of what is the right amount to talk? What is the right sort of questions? And that's what we're going to be diving into. It is funny because I remember reading that research and thinking that if you're an interviewer, don't interrupt the person who's interviewing you to talk about your weaknesses. Sure. <laughs> just, just let them talk about whatever. But we're going to yeah. be diving into this because that research was from years ago. We're going to be talking today with Preem Kumar, who's a person that has been looking at this right now online using techniques that are a lot more sophisticated than the ones that they had back when you and I were in grad school. Preem, welcome to Work Matters. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Preem, I didn't really introduce you other than I will say you're the, the CEO and co-founder of Humanly, which is a company that makes technology basically to help both the interviewers and interviewees improve the quality of kind of those high stake interviews. But can you tell us a little bit about your background and why does this topic of interviewing matter to you? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with a quick little personal anecdote. When I graduated from University of Washington, I was interviewing with a lot of different companies. It was a great economy at the time. And I would compare notes with one of my colleagues and she would consistently be asked a different set of questions by the exact same interviewers for the same job. Um, she would be grilled on some of the technical type skills. I would be grilled more on communication type skills. So I noticed that inconsistency and I felt there is something unfair in terms of perhaps a bias um, that's emanating. Um, so that was where my interest was peaked. I spent about 10 years at Microsoft in product working on HR technology, everything from talent acquisition so interviews to, to benefits and read a lot of the same research that, that you all mentioned. And eventually I uh, went to a company called Tiny Pulse where we were focused on employee engagement and worked with several linguistics experts and looked at kind of how we take this conversational theory and apply it specifically to the interview context. Uh, so to answer your question, personal experience combined with a lot of research that I've now looked at. 
that. Yeah. So it sounds like early on, you saw that different people have very different experiences with the interview itself. You know, what are some of the things that you've learned? I maybe talk a little bit about how you've learned because I think it's fascinating. We usually don't talk about technology a lot in this show, but in the case of what you're doing, a lot of what you're learning is due to really significant advances in technology recently. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you study these conversations and some of the big things that you've learned relative to maybe what has been around for a long time in this field. With the advancements of technology, we're able to actually analyze what specifically is happening inside of the interview. So if we think remote interviews, I know not all interviews are done remotely. We're able to look at intonation. We're able to look at how fast people are talking. Are they interrupting? Are they hogging the talk time? And I, I think what Robert mentioned, there certainly are still some of those things we're noticing around. Yeah, perhaps if you're talking more, you might leave thinking it went better. But at the same time, what we're finding is that if you're talking too fast, that disadvantages candidates where English is a second language. If you're a candidate and not asking at least two questions, you're not appearing as curious or passionate about the job. So what we can measure now is what words are being spoken, how they're being spoken, and what point during the conversation that they're coming up. So definitely can shine a light on that um, more so than we could in the past. I just think this is so fascinating because back when the studies that Steve and I are referencing, there was no machine learning to sit and analyze recorded audio and tease apart speaking cadence and words used and that kind of thing. The data you have access to must just be so fascinating and so much more nuanced than the kind of studies we were reading 15, 20 years ago. Are there things that people really need to think about that have become clear from going into a high stakes interview? To answer your question, you know, as you're going into interviews, there's certainly a lot of common things people are looking for. I think using language that is maybe negative or pessimistic will reduce sentiment that an interviewer has blaming other folks, speaking too quickly, things around being intellectually curious with by asking questions. So we, we do have data suggesting that in an, in a candidate that does not ask at least the sweet spots around two questions, maybe three in some cases, depending on the interview. But if you're going through and not asking any questions at the end, that could also disadvantage you. So I, I think thinking about not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it, and when you're saying it can go a long way in putting your best foot forward. Are there common mistakes that interviewees make going into that conversation? With any high stakes conversation, such as an interview, um, people are a little bit nervous. What we find is sometimes if you are nervous, some of these mistakes come to light. And one of them that we actually have customers that look for this when a candidate is asked a two-part question are they fully answering both parts of the question? Very common mistake to kind of just answer the first and not fully answer. And we do have some customers that'll definitely knock you out in an interview if that's happening, not physically, of course, but put you out of the process if that's happening too frequently. Because that does, you know, if it's a customer facing job and a customer asks you a two-part support question, you're going to want to get back to them on both parts of it. So that's one common mistake. I mentioned a little bit about even the pronouns you're using, are you talking in the first person or the third person? If you're giving too many examples in the third person, such as our team did this, or my team built a great product, and you're not talking about your personal contribution, that's all a mistake that oftentimes doesn't leave the interviewer with as much confidence in your responses. Cream, as I'm listening to you, because you've just shared a ton of stuff, and it seems to me that there's like three things you've got to be thinking about when you're going into one of these conversations. One of them is kind of impression or emotional. 
when you're talking about don't use negative terms, don't be negative, don't blame other people. You've got to create a positive sort of customer service experience, if you will. So the 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 managing the impression and probably you could get into things about how you dress and stuff would fall into that area too. The second one, and, and I want to dig into all these in more detail, is you've got to share information the right way. What you're saying is fully answering these questions, providing detailed information, not speaking too quickly. So really thinking about, am I sharing the right information the right way? And the third that we haven't really talked about yet is in these interviews, there's a decision component, whether you're the interviewing, which is like, I want a decision to hire a person. But if you're the interview, it's like, do I want to go work here? So that decision component. So I want to dig a little more and maybe we'll start because I know you studied both interviewers and interviewees, right? Both sides of the equation. Maybe if we start with the interviewee, because that's probably the majority of people that are listening to this. And we'll get interviewers because a lot of people do interview. But on the interviewee, when you look at those three things, what would you say first? Let's start with the impression. As you're preparing to go into an interview, and there's studies that have showed, I don't know if this is still true, that the impression we make in the first like minute often shapes the entire interview. What is it should be top of mind to make a positive impression? There is some potential bias in the first 15 seconds if you're making decisions there. But but your job as, as an interviewee is to, to limit that bias and to put your best foot forward. One of the things is preparation. So the biggest reason why people don't appear confident is... They're, they're nervous. It's a high stakes conversation. You can certainly be nervous. So going in and, and being sure too, that doing the research, not just to impress the interviewer, but knowing that this is the job for you, this is, this is where you want to be and making that very clear. So I think if you go in with a purpose, if you go in knowing that, Hey, we're, I'm not just doing this interview because I want to get a job. This is the place I want to work that usually comes through, you know, and, and there are some, some kind of more like exoteric type things. And, and some more superficial things you can do, such as showing up a little bit early, which could be good for the interviewer to see, but it actually makes the candidate more comfortable if, if they're not scrambling to get Zoom working or finding parking. So that's another thing, making sure the basic things are taken out of the equation. So you can really focus on having that strong two-way conversation. I think that's a good point too, because I think what you have to remember as an interviewer is it's also what in psychology terms we call a behavioral sample, which is if you show up on time for your interview, you're more likely to be associated with showing up on time for work. <laughs> There's sort of an element of that. The same way to your point about really listen to the questions. And if they say this is a two-part question, you know, really listen and show that you're very attentive because you're showing the behavioral example of what you would be like to work with. The last question that I want to ask before we kind of switch to the interviewer side. On the interviewee side, what things should you try to do to pick up what's going on with the company? Like, you know, if you're in that situation, like Robert said, where the interviewer is just asking all the questions, how do you, as an interviewee, say, hey, wait, there's stuff I want to know too, but I don't want to seem rude. Is there a right way to interrupt people? It's a good question. So I think there's two parts to that. One is you want to go in with an agenda. These are the messages that you want to get across. And these are the questions that you want answered. As far as when to ask those questions, if the interviewer is doing all the talking, 
you can ask up front and you can say, will there be time for questions? Should I save my questions for the end? I did come prepared with a couple of questions. So I think making sure you're setting expectations for the flow and structure of the interview, and you do have power over that as, as the person being interviewed, I found that to be, to be very helpful. Interviewers often appreciate if you start by setting that expectation that you are looking to get a couple of things out of this as well. I like that because also that's an element of confidence. You know, we're nervous often because we don't control, but what you just shared is it's okay to say, hey, here's how I like to do interviews. I know that you're going to have questions, but there's a part of it that I like to ask too. Hopefully we'll have time being accommodating, which is is a really good example because I think a lot of people when they interview, they just show up and wait to be asked questions as opposed to show up and say, hey, there's stuff that I want to get out of this too. Are there things that you see people kind of shooting themselves in the foot consistently and say, here are some things that people often do that really hurt them that they don't realize are hurting them? We study monologue. What we mean by that is oftentimes, and this could be a factor of being nervous when you've already answered the question, and ideally you'd be using a structured format. There's a lot of techniques out there, but to answer the question, but then continuing on. Another piece too is when there's pauses in conversation, folks that are more nervous will jump in and try and fill the pause. Are there typical flows of an interview that tend to work better than others, Preem? So yeah, the flow of an interview generally we'd recommend a few minutes at the beginning, which is rapport building and small talk, which can get get out of hand. Um, if, if you're spending like five, six, seven minutes on that of a 30 minute interview, which does happen, particularly if it's a candidate that maybe also lives in the same city as you, or you went to university with them, there might be some proximity bias, but generally you want to be consistent, keep that to a few minutes. The actual Q&A portion, so you have a small talk, the rapport building, the, the Q&A. And the Q&A, it was mentioned earlier, but keeping it conversational, not one way, it is certainly something that leads to better success on, on the side of both parties. And generally it is it is good and to leave time for questions at the end. So candidates, and sometimes like um, Stephen was pointing out, candidates might not get a chance during the flow of the interview to get their questions in. So leaving dedicated time at the end, I found that to be a good way to wrap an interview. And our, our data shows that leads to high sentiment on both sides. It's really interesting to me that the timeline that you mentioned, because in a lot of ways, it's designed to counter exactly what I indicated I was trying to do at the beginning of this podcast, which was in those interviews, I wanted to get the recruiter talking. I wanted to make sure that they spoke enough that they also felt like this was a great meeting and it went well. Whether that was a good strategy or not based on the data available in those days, who knows? But that timeline is designed for interviewers to give everybody a similar experience so that they really can compare. It's designed to stop what I was trying to do, <laughs> you know, by putting all the Q&A at the end, for example. Yeah, I mean, in the absence of data, leaving a positive impression and a positive feeling could give you a better chance of getting the job. I think now when those decisions are being made, ideally there'd be more objective data. So you don't have to necessarily play into something like them talking more, leading to them feeling better about the interview. But yeah. Yeah, because ideally it shouldn't be based on a feeling entirely anyway, right? You're looking for real, true, bona fide job qualification. Yeah. And we're, we're getting into the, the third year. We kind of talked earlier that there's the impression of what you said on the interviewer side. It's like, do everything you can to not make the candidate nervous. So like start on time, provide them advance notice. But then the second thing on the, you're talking about the flow of the conversation, which is make sure you're not talking too quickly, structure the conversation so they know what to expect. What we haven't really talked about is, you know, the ultimate thing on the interviewer side is the decision. 
What are the things that every interviewer should do if they want to make good hiring decisions? Good question. And I know you touched on the structured piece. I do think consistency is very important. If you're expected to compare apples to apples, but your interviews are apples and mangoes, it's not, not necessarily going to leave you with the context. So what I mean by that is you don't necessarily need to speak from a script. I do think it should be a, a good conversation, but covering the same topics. Um, you know, if you bring up one topic with one candidate and then another topic with the next candidate, it's going to be very hard to make an objective decision. So I do think consistency and approach consistency in how you speak. So I was mentioning speaking too quickly as an interviewer that can really disadvantage some types of candidates. So you want to get a level comparison and consistency is, is very important there. Another piece is the stat around people, you know, deciding in the first few minutes, oftentimes that's because they're playing too much into visual cues or things that could cause bias. So don't make a decision in the interview, right? So go back and talk to all your, make sure that you have a full slate before you, you are making a decision. Those are a couple, couple of things that come to mind. Yeah, but really interesting, that one about the bias. Some people have argued that you should not be able to see people during interviews. What is your view on the efforts to decrease bias by hiding visual imagery or names or things like that that might trigger bias? So it really does depend. On one side of it, I think that extreme has been born out of the fact that we don't have other objective data points. So we're relying on our bias. So if you don't have objective data by which to make a decision, you might be playing in, into some of the things that cause bias. That, that's one side. The other side is, yeah, there's certainly, certainly research around bias based on people's names, around eye contact they make. So when we were building our product, I interviewed someone who was sight impaired and he, his gestures were different than other folks. We interviewed someone with autism spectrum disorder and their strength was not in small talk at the beginnings. So I, I don't necessarily think you have to hide because I mean, if you're biased in the interview, you're going to be biased when you hire them. So you might solve the diversity problem, but you're not solving the equity, inclusion and belonging problem that will eventually rear its head being real in the interview, but making sure you have access to the actual objective data and looking at that to make your decision is important. So it goes back to follow consistent process, make sure you know what is the information that I want to gather from each interview, because if you don't have that, you're more prone to over-rely on all those biases. The way that you overwhelm bias in your gut is you use your head to make decisions. <laughs> yes. So you said one of the things that motivated you first to get in this was to decrease bias. Are there other things that you have learned that have helped reduce bias? I think it starts with measurement. You can't change what you can't measure. One of our customers, for instance, we found that junior female candidates were getting seven minutes less to speak than their male counterparts. And until you recognize the problem, it's hard to create behavioral change. One thing I noticed on my interviews is I'm much less patient with product managers than I am with engineers for some reason. That caused me to be biased, caused inconsistent interview patterns. One thing we see our customers do is take stock at the end of the interview. So here's my list of general bias triggers that studies have shown happen in interviews. Proximity bias is one of them. Because someone went to my university, am I already having a more positive um, sentiment towards them? And we, we can measure sentiment based on language, based on talk time, based on some of those other areas. So I think taking stock 
of what the known biases are at the end of the interview and maybe where you might have some things to improve on are, are important. I like that because it's it's awareness. Be aware of how you're likely to be biased and then you're more able to con- control it. Although I do go back to the, I have to say the studies research says that awareness is not enough. You need to fill also with that consistent objective data. So you focus on that. But um, those are really good points. And I I do love the way your technology actually surfaces this because it holds a mirror up to uh, interviewers on what they're doing. It's so funny. I was just going to say that too, Steve, because that that is the value of this technology here. And we don't usually talk about it, but oftentimes the, the most challenging part of bias is the unconscious bias, which by definition, we don't have access to ourselves, right? You really need to have that revealed to you or it wouldn't be referred to as unconscious. One last question. What about after the interview and, and and even more so on both sides, but more so on the interview, is there anything, and I don't know if you're able to study this or not, but after you complete an interview, what should you follow on? Like, is there stuff that you would suggest or have you looked at that is post-interview that if you're a candidate, it's likely to make it go better for you? Or if you're an interviewer, is like you to get you make a better decision? Yeah, so I think one thing that's important um, is just being really clear with uh, kind of what what the process looks like, what the next steps are. Um, Candidates oftentimes will feel that um, if if that isn't made clear that there might be getting a little different process than other ones. Um, You know, thank yous are, you know, you'll have some people that some hiring teams that swear by getting a thank you message where if they don't get a response from the candidate afterwards, they're automatically putting them lower on the list. Other folks may not place it. And maybe it depends on the type of role, if it's a customer service role. Um, So that kind of comes down to the the style um, of of the particular individual. Um, but, But I think up front in the interview explaining what's going to happen next is is important um not letting the process be um be a surprise um yeah th- those are those are a couple of things and and then time is of the essence i mean it depends on what type of market we're dealing with but in candidate driven markets um you want to be quick um especially if there are strong candidates, you, you know, you want to set expectations, you want to close them as soon as possible. On the candidate side, in addition to, you know, perhaps a respectful thank you, um, you can be proactive. I mean, if if you have another offer, um, send a message and say, hey, I, w- I wanted to let you know that I'm, I need to make a decision by X date. Um, I haven't heard back yet. So I, I've seen People fail both sides because they're not not proactive enough in continuing that conversation. And the last thing I'll say is, um, as a candidate, you know, even if this particular job doesn't work out, there might be another job this company has. There might be other opportunities. So any investment you make in the aftermath of the interview that impresses the interviewer could could help you in the future. Prem, any other big tips and tricks you'd offer to either candidates or interviewers that we didn't ask you? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll say, and you know, this maybe more more so applies to to like B two C companies, but candidates are not just applicants, um, you know, they could be potential customers, they could be advocates, they could be future employees. So, you know, doing what you can to, you know, engage with as many candidates as you can in a very positive manner can have a lot of bottom line benefits. A lot of companies lose money because they're not engaging with candidates appropriately. I think that's good. I remember talking to a company that said, in many cases, your candidates literally are your customers. So treat them well. And in many cases, they spend far more with your company than your standard customer would. Yeah. Well, Prem, thank you so much for this. And I, I, I look forward to seeing what you continue to learn, sort of like you're pushing the envelope on what we're able to measure on. What are these 
you know, high stakes interviews and questions that are so critical to companies and candidates alike. So thank you very much for appearing on Work Matters. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Robert, what did you take away? Would you change the way you did interviews now based on what you just learned? Well, you know, I think, I don't think I would change what I did, you know, because clearly it worked and kind of got me here. But Prem offers such a more nuanced perspective than we had back then. You, you know what I mean? You just didn't mm-hmm. have the technology available to analyze conversations in the same way possible. So it's sort of like we had gross motor skills and then fine motor skills. And we've got gross data and now fine data coming in. Yeah. What I took away, again, was that detail thing. And I kind of I went through the different stages of like, First of all, for the interviewer before the call, you want to make sure you do things to make the candidate calm because you're not trying to interview or they're a good interviewer. You want to see if they're a good candidate. So being on time, communicating in advance on the interviewee side, do things to build your confidence, which includes, again, arriving on time, preparing for it, but also having your own structure. I thought that was interesting to say, hey, I have a way that I like to approach interviews. Then once they got into it, those different things he talked about, which was, you know, one, the emotional tone that you set on both sides. Don't use negative terms. Don't be yeah. negative or blaming other people. Be an upbeat person because you get a better impression on the both sides, too. It's a realistic behavioral sample, if you will, in terms of as an interviewer, if you treat the person well and organized, they're going to think this is a company I want to work for as an interviewee. Remember, they're evaluating everything about you, including how you answer the question. Are you complete in answering the question? And then the last one on the decision is particularly on the interview is the best, I mean, interviewer, the best way to avoid bias is to really know what it is you're actually making the decision based on and follow a structured process. I think that's so powerful, so simple and so powerful. And that last little bit about the follow-on, which is as an interviewer, let people know what's going to happen next. And as a candidate, follow up and thank them. You, you know, it won't hurt and it might help a lot. So, wow, that was a definitely a lot of stuff um, to take away. And we've it's nice to know we've learned a lot since we were in grad school. <laughs> well, and the data keeps evolving, right? So you make the best decisions you can with the data you've got in the year that you have it. And then you find out you were slightly wrong. Absolutely. You know, here's down the road and you moderate once again. I know. We'll have to have Preem back on and work matters in a year. We'll have even more data. Well, with oh that, my God, we'll it'll be out. so <laughs> fascinating. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. We appreciate you joining us for our show today. Thanks to our guest, Preem Kumar, to our chief sanity officer, Morgan Garner, and our editor, Robbie Echeverria. Thanks as well to the Open SAP team for supporting this and so much other educational programming for professionals. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we hope to have earned a new subscriber and perhaps a quick rating wherever you listen. We'll be sure to get you more information in our show notes. So if you're looking for for more on Prem Kumar, myself, Robert Richardson, or the ever prolific Dr. Steve Hunt, who recently posted his thoughts on the future of technology on LinkedIn, look no further than our show notes. We look forward to seeing you on the next podcast because what matters? Well, today, high stakes conversations matter. Interviews matter. Work matters. Thanks for joining us on the Work Matters Podcast.